they talk about how problems marinate in the back of your brain. You don't forget about them. When you walk away, there is some small part of your brain that's still working on it. And that's very helpful. I guess it's using different parts of the brain. So it's giving it a different perspective. And then when you come back, like you have that aha moment. And it's great. I love that. But it takes some discipline to force yourself to walk away. It really does. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for having me in your ears and in your brains today. I am delighted to share with you another conversation with our friend AJ Jacobs, who, as you know, is a four-time New York Times bestselling author. His new book is called The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, From Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. Now, loyal listener, you might be thinking, well, Paul, what do puzzles have to do with crazy money? Well, money is a puzzle, first of all. But of course, what we really talk about on crazy money is life and how to live the best life we can, what role money plays therein, and how do we navigate the complications of families, careers, health, mindfulness, all those good things. All these could be seen as puzzles. All these things that relationships jobs, careers, all these things can be seen as puzzles that we have to navigate as human beings. And AJ dives deep into more literal puzzles like crosswords, jigsaws, ken-ken, sudoku, if I said that right, and uses the rules of those games, if I can call them games, to try to take away lessons that we might be able to apply to our everyday lives. So we talk about these things. We talk about crosswords, jigsaws, why the V in Atlanta's Verrazano's Pizza logo uses the cubed root symbol, how AJ felt about being a clue in the New York Times Saturday crossword puzzle, why creating order out of chaos makes our brains feel good, and along those lines, why I, Paul Ollinger, your host, finds loading the dishwasher to be enormously therapeutic because in that moment, I get to create order out of chaos. We're going to go deep on that, and I'll even share one of my uh, short comedy bits on the matter and... (laughs) My wife loves that bit. Anyway, all this and more in this conversation with our friend, AJ Jacobs. AJ Jacobs, welcome back to Crazy Money. It is great to be back. Thank you, Paul. So last we met, well, actually the only time we've ever met, we've traded emails, but the only time we've ever met was in person in pre-COVID times in your flexible office space on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, 2019, I think. How have you been? How's life? Well, I no longer have that office space. I was going to say, I bet you didn't go there for a while. (laughs) Nope, nope. But yeah, other than that, I've been hanging in there. I've been doing this book. And um, I don't know about you, but I love researching books and I love talking about them with people like you, especially you. But I hate writing them. I just hate. (laughs) It's It's the pesky, like the fun part of playing games and doing the research, but not actually putting pen to paper. Right. There is that. I mean, I know that my title is officially writer, so it's a little weird that I hate to write, but I think a lot of writers hate to write. Pretty prolific one at that, right? Well, thanks. I don't know. I don't know if that's, I mean, I look at people who are, my friend Stuart Gibbs, who's a children's writer, like every month, there's a new one on Facebook and it, uh, comparison is the thief of joy. I've learned. I was about to pull that out on you. (laughs) That's right. So I should not be comparing myself. I should be happy with what I have. So you've got this new book coming out. We're going to talk about it in depth. But what was it like writing a book during pandemic? Well, it was interesting. I started this book right before the pandemic, which is weird because the topic seems like it would have been inspired by the pandemic because the topic is puzzles. 
and puzzles were huge. In the beginning of the pandemic, it was like jigsaw puzzles. You couldn't find them on the shelves. They were like uh, hand sanitizer. Like they were like, they talked about the shops couldn't keep them in stock. And then there was this Wordle craze just a few months ago. But uh, weirdly, uh, my obsession predates COVID. My favorite part of writing, as I say, is research and not just research, but going on adventures, like going to Spain and competing in the World Jigsaw Puzzle Tournament or going to the headquarters of the CIA. So I was able to do that a little before COVID and also in between waves. So I was able to go on a bunch of adventures, but I probably would have preferred to go on more if not for COVID. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, the name of the book is The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever from Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. Way to set the bar low, AJ. (laughs) Thank you. I like to promise. Why do you love puzzles so much? Well, I've always loved puzzles. Ever since I was a kid, I would uh, do crosswords. I would make pencil mazes. I would draw them myself on their living room floor, and they would take up the whole living room. And I realized... It informed my worldview. I sort of see the world as a giant puzzle. And my other books could be framed as puzzles. I wrote a book on called The Year of Living Biblically, which was about the puzzle of religion. I wrote a book uh, called Thanks a Thousand, which we talked about, which is about the puzzle of how to be grateful in a world where it's often hard to be grateful, at least because of the way we're wired. So I have always loved puzzles. And I think it's because curiosity. I mean, that is gratitude and curiosity are my two favorite emotions, if that's what you call them, emotions or drives. And I've always been super curious and puzzles are, that's the core, the essence of puzzles, curiosity. Okay. Let's do desert island puzzles. You're stuck on a desert island. You get three types of puzzles to keep with you until your ship comes. What are those three puzzles for you? Well, that's interesting because Do I just get the one? Because if I have one puzzle that, you know, I I want one that's going to take like three months to solve. Like this one at the CIA, which has taken over 32 years to solve and still no one has solved it. So maybe I take that one. But as for the ones that uh, really addict me and just get my dopamine going, I do love crosswords. My first true crush. And I'm also aware I love lateral thinking puzzles. Those sort of weird ones like a guy is lying dead in a field with a unopened knapsack. What happened? Those I think are fun. And I like Wordle, but Spelling Bee is actually, I prefer Spelling Bee. I don't know if you've done that one. That's the New York Times weekly thing. Yeah. It's a, it's an anagram. You just, it's like, you've got to find words. Uh, it's like a sophisticated jumble. You know, one of the reasons that I have refused to try Wordle is that I tend to get addicted to puzzles. Like I was in a Scrabble rabbit hole with my friend Rob Goldberg for oh, for months at a time where I would go back and forth. And as I was playing, I'd think, how does this guy have time to be spending this much time <laughs> with me playing Scrabble? And I eventually, and my buddy Ted Maiko also, and I eventually had to just say, guys, I'm out. I can't control myself <laughs> in this medium. Like if it was one move a day, you know, for months, I think I could do it, but we'd just be going back and forth all day long. So that's why I've refused to try Wordle. And I kind of resist the temptation to go into the New York Times crossword puzzles because I'm afraid the same thing will happen. Well, my argument, one of my theses in the book is that it's a great addiction. If you're going to have an addiction, it is a very good one. Because 
I don't think it's a waste of time. I don't think it's a trivial pursuit. I think it is a really great way, not just to have fun while you're doing it, but to train your mind to be a better thinker and even to be more compassionate and to be happy. Like there are all of these benefits that I think flow from puzzles. Granted, there may be some rationalization going on because <laughs> I've spent thousands of hours on puzzles, but I've talked to lots of scientists and psychologists and there is, there is evidence that, uh, yeah, this is good for you. This is not a waste of time. If your brain is a muscle, this has got to be going to the gym for your brain on a daily, multiple times a day basis, right? Absolutely. And I would even, to use the um, sort of the gym physical metaphor, I think it's also stretching. Like you are doing some serious stretching because <laughs> what puzzles teach you is how to be flexible, cognitively flexible, which is, I think, is one of the most important ways to train our brain. And especially as I get older and older, the ruts in my brain get deeper and deeper. There's just such a danger of being stuck in one way of thinking and having that awful confirmation bias. Show me an example of a way a crossword forces me to remain cognitively flexible. Oh, yeah. Well, a good crossword puzzler has to think improbabilities. And you should always use pencil. There are some like macho crossword puzzle people who are like, <laughs> I use pen. But I just think that's a that's not being smart. That's just being idiotic because a good crossword puzzle, you need to adjust your thinking. You need to have a hypothesis. And I'll give you one example. The clue was the result of a bad trip, the result of a bad trip. And the word began with F. And I think it was it was nine letters or ten letters. I can't remember. But I freaking was, out is that one, is that one of the? Well, there you go. That's what I thought. I thought flashback it was very similar, right? It's like an acid flashback, the result of a bad trip. And I had that in there. I didn't have it in pen, but I had it in very dark pencil. And yeah, it screwed me up for a good twenty minutes because it was not the right answer. The answer was faceplant, like the other kind of trip. <laughs> <laughs> so right. you, I was just, it could have also been lost luggage or something to relate to a different a vacation as a kind of trip. Yeah, exactly. It makes you realize there are multiple meanings to words, which is an important lesson. And it makes you realize that you cannot just focus on one. You have to think in, in what they call Bayesian thinking, like this is probably what it is, but I'm not going to be sure. And I'm going to be open to other ideas and I just think that in life, that is the way to go through life. And you've talked about this on your show a lot. And I love that. You've got to go in with probable thinking, probability-driven thinking. I think this is going to make me happy. Let's try it. Let's experiment. Maybe if it does, great. If it doesn't, move on to the next hypothesis. <laughs> you, know, you talked about cognitive flexibility, and it seems that for the past 10 years, for whatever reason, a lot of people blame it on social media, but we have become more and more entrenched in mm. our own ways of thinking from a political or from a philosophical or from a moral point of view. And one of the interesting things that you pointed out when they somebody did a study and they put people of differing political philosophies together, and the only thing they came together on was solving a crossword puzzle. Is that right? Yeah, I love that. And that was Cass Sunstein, who's a great scholar, and maybe you've had him on the show, but yeah, he found that that was one of the only activities that bound them even further. One strategy that I found effective is when I'm talking to someone from the other side of the political spectrum, instead of trying to see it as a war, like a war of words, 
and I'm going to beat them down with my rhetoric. Instead, I try to picture it as a puzzle. So I'm talking to this person and the puzzle is, why does he or she believe what they believe? What is the real crux of our disagreement? What do we really disagree about? Is there any evidence that they could present me or I could present them that would change their mind? This is the puzzler mindset is what I call it. And there are studies that show this is the way to change people's minds. You're not going to change people's minds by berating them. You're going to change it with curiosity and asking questions and seeing it almost as a cooperative adventure. How can we figure this out together? Let's talk about that journey our brains go on when we're trying to solve puzzles. Remind me the puzzles that are represented by numbers and letters. What are those called again? You mean didloids? Is that the one? There's so many with numbers and letters. One of the people you profiled in the book was summarizing the process our brain goes through with- Oh, I think I know who you mean. I think you mean the godfather of Sudoku. Yes. Yes. His name is Maki Kaji. He had a three-character summary of- puzzles that I loved because it was just so simple. And he wrote on the, the whiteboard, question mark, arrow, exclamation point. What does that represent? Well, the question mark is the beginning. You're given a situation that's baffling. The arrow is you're wrestling with the puzzle. And the exclamation point is the aha moment that you're all seeking the dopamine rush. Now, uh, there are a couple of things that I love about this. First, I don't think that it should be combined to puzzles. I mean, I think that that is a lot of stories. That's sort of the narrative structure. You're given a situation, you struggle, resolution. But I also love what he said because he was very Zen about it. He said, you've got to embrace the arrow or else you're going to be miserable in life. You know, you've got to embrace the fun of trying to solve the puzzle of the journey. And you've talked about this many times in the show that you cannot be focused on the end point because the end point might just disappoint. So you've got to embrace the struggle. So that was a big lesson I tried to impart in the book. And I tried to present puzzles. At the end of the book, there is a puzzle that is literally impossible (laughs) to solve in the time that we have in this universe. Like It would take more than the several billion years that we have left so with that one, you definitely have to embrace the, uh, the journey. Now, there's sort of two conflicting thoughts here. On one level, you say when you approach a puzzle, you have to start with the end in mind. On the other hand, you can't have a fixed mindset. You have to allow the puzzle to unfold the way it's going to unfold in certain kinds yeah. of puzzles. There's one solution to a crossword puzzle. There's one solution to a jigsaw puzzle, right? But all puzzles don't have that same kind of conclusion. I love that you say that because I think that I can encourage you to have more cognitive flexibility on this because (laughs) having the strategy of seeing the end point and then getting to it, that is one strategy. It's a great strategy, but it's just one strategy. And sometimes it doesn't work. It doesn't work for all types of situations. It doesn't work for all puzzles. So there are other types of strategies, and I'm sure you know them because they're not just for puzzles, they're for life. Break them down into small bits. Like that's a great strategy for what are called Fermi puzzles or Fermi problems. Sorry, what does that mean, Fermi? What does that mean? Well, those are the puzzles. Maybe they even gave it to you when you did your Facebook interview, their job interview. They're like, how many uh, plumbers are there in Chicago? How many piano tuners are there in New York? That kind of puzzle. 
And the way to solve those is you don't just make a wild guess. You break it down into as many small parts as you can. So you say, how many households are there in Chicago? How many of those households have pianos? How often does a piano need to be tuned? And then you figure out a number for each of these. And your answer is still going to be off, but it's going to be much, much closer than just a wild guess. And what they're really trying to figure out in those interviews, or case interviews is what they call them in business school. When you go in an interview at McKinsey or whatever, my McKinsey interview lasted five minutes because they realized I, I didn't know how to do this. <laughs> but they're trying to figure out how you think more than they're trying to figure out if you are going to get to the right answer. Right. And breaking down is an excellent way to think. But again, that's just one strategy, just like seeing the end point and working to the end. That's just one strategy. So I think that good thinkers have multiple tools in their toolkit, multiple strategies that they can use. So let's talk about some of the other ones that you brought up. Strategies for solving puzzles. First of all, start with the toehold. What does that mean? Bill Clinton actually talked about this when he was in the crossword puzzle documentary called Wordplay. And, and he's a big crossword fan. And the hardest puzzle of the week is the Saturday puzzle in the New York Times. And often I'll have the same experience where you look at it for like three minutes and have nothing. You get nothing. <laughs> and you just keep going. You have to keep going down and down and down the clues. And then finally, one will break and you'll be like, oh, Ben, her. Okay, it's H-U-R. And then you can build out from there. So it's all about finding that toehold, getting that that one purchase and then building out from there. And I, again, he says it, and I agree, this is not just for crosswords. I think for any problem, I do it in writing. I always start my writing with the sort of the easiest, here's the most vivid anecdote that I know is going to work. I'm going to flesh that out and then I'm going to build the outline out from there. Right. So this is the story and maybe you need a way to get into the story, but this is the meat of the argument. Here are the points I want to make. And then you sort of move pieces around as the picture becomes clearer in your mind. And the way it becomes clear is by actually doing the work, right? Right. And that is another lesson I learned. I mean, I, as I mentioned, I hate writing. But I tried to reframe it. I tried to reframe it as a puzzle and it was much more pleasant. And I feel that that's a nice life lesson. If you try to reframe some of the more frustrating parts of life, even loading the dishwasher. Oh, so I have this whole bit about loading the dishwasher. And when I see the dishwasher, it's a puzzle. It is absolutely, it's, it's a fixed environment. And I have a certain amount of dishes that represent chaos in the sink. And as you said in the book multiple times, The great thing about puzzles is that you're creating order out of chaos. And with the dishwasher, that is the most perfect and daily reminder of our opportunity to create order out of chaos. And the way I do it is perfect. And the way my wife does it is just creating more chaos. (laughs) I want a lesson from you. Well, I don't know. I'm I'm sure as soon as I hold myself up as an expert, I will be reamed by the social, (laughs) the true experts in this field. It pleases me when I get all the dishes in there as as neatly and as effectively as possible. And when I tell that joke on stage, I always see in the audience couples looking at each other, pointing the finger saying, he's you, I'm his wife. I am your wife, yes, I am your wife. I never imagined that after 10 years of marriage, our biggest fight wouldn't be about fidelity or finances, it'd be about the fact that my wife loads the dishwasher like an (laughs) 
no regard for geometry or physics or getting the dishes clean, for that matter. I look at the mess she's created. I'm like, honey, it goes big plate, big plate, little plate, little plate. But with you, it's like an Escher painting on peyote. A dish here, a bowl there, cutlery strewn across the top rack. I was like, honey, how far away were you from the dishwasher when you threw that in there? You, you were right next to him? Well, that's interesting. Does symmetry mean nothing to you? You must suck at Tetris, my God. Please tell me that's not a cutting board standing vertically on the bottom rack blocking the upper spray arm. Could you please tell me that? Yes, upper spray arm, that's what it's called. You would know if you gave a shit, but clearly you do not. I'm Paul Ollinger, thank you very much. All you talk about loading the dishwasher and order out of chaos. Sometimes if I'm on a long call, I'll just open Tetris and start to play Tetris in the background. And I feel as if I'm getting something done because I'm creating neat lines out of these misshapen mm. ob and random objects. What's going on in my head that soothes me? I think that is another benefit of puzzles. So that is sort of the meditative side of puzzles and, and puzzles like Tetris and jigsaw puzzles. I mean, a lot of people told me the jigsaw puzzles were just, you know, they needed them. They were like, you know, a soothing drug during the pandemic. And also I heard an interview with Hugh Jackman, who this metaphor I hadn't heard. He likes them because every time he gets one in, he feels like he's popping a zip. It's the same feeling. So that's his metaphor, not mine. So don't blame me. But yeah, I think puzzles serve different purposes. And one of them is this wonderful, soothing, meditative feel. And I'm all for that. You need that sometimes. I'm bad at real meditating, but I find it relaxing to do puzzles. Now, you mentioned another one of your strategies earlier, which is embrace the eraser. You, you put it in the terms that say you use pencil, but the way you put it in the book is that you should embrace the eraser. Oh, yeah. It's just what we were saying, that we should have epistemic humility is one of my favorite pretentious uh, phrases that you've probably used yourself. But it's great. You know, you've got to be humble about what you know and be willing to switch. And that is the way of the eraser. So I try to do it in everything, not just in puzzles, but in my life. I'll say, you know, uh, what are the odds? I try not to say this is going to happen or not going to happen and say, you know, my wife might even ask me, when are you coming home? Well, there's a 70% chance I'll be home at four o'clock. And, uh, you know, she might roll her eyes, but I actually think it's a better way to live. It's a better way. You don't want to raise people's expectations or crush them. You've got to give them, uh, we've all got to start thinking in probabilities. No multitasking. This has got to be particularly difficult in the age of uh, mobile technology and social media. Yeah. I mean, I once did a whole article or chapter in a book on multitasking and how it's a myth. And, you know, you're not really multitasking, of course, you're switching your brain between one task and another. And there's a huge startup cost for every time you switch. But I still multitask. But puzzles to me were one of the clearest bits of evidence that multitasking does not work. Because it was just fascinating to see the night and day situation where I would be working on a, a hard crossword puzzle while watching TV with my wife getting, you know, one, maybe every five minutes and then turn off the TV and I focus on it, you know, it just flows. So it's just such clear evidence that you need to multitask. But the other side of that, it, I mean, that you need to monotask, not multitask. And the other side of that is though, 
that it's also a very good strategy to walk away. Mm. And, and so you want to focus, 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 walk away when you hit a, a brick wall. And then you come back and you see it with fresh eyes for any problem, for any puzzle. And even Leonardo da Vinci talked about it when his paint, you know, it's in his book on painting. He said, I got to walk away. So who knows how many times he walked away from the Mona Lisa. That's definitely true in writing. We did a lot of jigsaw puzzles at our house over pandemic, and I really do enjoy them. And I find it interesting. You can just stare at it for hours and get a few pieces and then slowly your piece per hour minute goes down <laughs> and then you wake up in the morning and you walk and you look at it and there's like oh here's 10 pieces you can just slot right in and it's mm -hmm. bizarre how quickly that happens why is that well from what i understand i'm not a, a brain uh scientist but they talk about how problems marinate in the back of your brain you don't forget about them when you walk away there is some small part of your brain that's still working on it and that's very helpful. And then I guess it's using different parts of the brain. So it's giving it a different perspective. And then when you come back, like you have that aha moment. And it's great. I love that. But it takes some discipline to force yourself to walk away. It really does. Now, you mentioned the Saturday New York Times crossword puzzle a few minutes ago. And uh, you are an avid player user. What is the term that we use? Are you, You're not a crossword yeah. player. What are you? Uh, cruciverbalist is the official fancy term. <laughs> is it your, your <laughs> crossword filler outer? I don't know what it, whatever it is, I do it. But you have a special attachment to the Saturday New York Times crossword puzzle. Yes. Will you share that anecdote, please? I would love to. It's the way I open the book because I try to inject. The book is a combination of several things. It's sort of a memoir of my love of puzzles, history of puzzles, science of puzzles, ways to solve puzzles, and of course, puzzles themselves. It has hundreds of old and new puzzles and a contest, which we can talk about because that is actual real money, not crazy money. It's like $10,000. Not It's like, you know, that's good. That's worth considering for sure. Yeah. It's like, it's not nothing. That is for sure. But you have to work for it. But back to your um, question, I start yeah. the book with an anecdote about how about five years ago, I got an email saying that I was the answer to a clue in the New York Times crossword puzzle. I hadn't done it that day. And I was overjoyed. What was I the clue? What was specifically was the clue? It was author A.J. Blank, or author of the know-it-all, which was my oh, okay. first book, right. yeah. A.J. Blank. And I thought this was the highlight of my life, you know, the birth <laughs> of my kids and my wedding. Those were pretty good, but this is the holy grail. And then I got an email from my brother-in-law, who did congratulate me, but he also pointed out that I appeared in the Saturday New York Times. And as I mentioned, that is the hardest puzzle of the week. And all of the clues, all of the answers are totally obscure. <laughs> no one's supposed to know them. So his point, which was, which was fairly dead on, was this is not a compliment. This is proof you're totally obscure. So that was crushing. So it was an emotional roller coaster. But the happy ending is I told that anecdote on a podcast and it happened that a crossword maker for the New York Times was listening and he rescued me and he put me in the Tuesday puzzle, which is not Monday, but it's still pretty good. <laughs> and it's still, I don't belong there. Like that is not a place for me. Like that's for Lady Gaga and Joe Biden. That's where they belong. Not me. What was the clue on Tuesday? Well, Tuesdays, it was actually a little complicated because the whole theme of the Tuesday puzzle was about my story. So it was actually, 
I was one across AJ Jacobs. And then the theme clues were the quote where I said, I'm going to be a loser until I'm in a Monday or Tuesday puzzle or something along those lines. So, <laughs> so, so I actually was doing it at night when it came out at 10 o'clock at night. And I said to my son who was sitting next to me, I said, I think someone's playing a joke on me. Like someone has hacked my computer because I couldn't believe <laughs> that I would be the theme of a New York Times crossword puzzle. That is so weird. So it was really trippy. And I was so freaked out. I actually couldn't solve my own crossword puzzle. It took me like an hour and it usually takes me, you know, half that. I was intimidated listening to it. I was like, I got to go try the New York Times. I'm going to start with a Monday crossword puzzle, see how I do. Monday, yes, that's good. I mean, it takes a long time. I couldn't solve the Saturday for years. So uh, yeah, it's like a language you have to learn. But I think it's great. As I say, it's a good addiction. Let's talk about how puzzles bring people together. I learned about lots of different puzzle associations from all over the world. Tell me about your trip to Spain. Oh, yeah, this was one of the highlights for me was there's chapters on all different types of puzzles. So I knew I had to do a jigsaw puzzle chapter, even though jigsaws have been traditionally my least favorite type of puzzle. I just, I was snobby. I didn't think that they were, you know, tricky enough. And I was totally wrong. I was disabused. There's some amazingly brilliant jigsaw puzzles. But when researching, I also ran across something called the World Jigsaw Puzzle Tournament. And I clicked on it and it listed all of these countries that were going. 40 countries like Mexico, New Zealand, Uganda, Poland, no USA. And I said, well, what, what's going on? So I, on a whim, I fill out the application, figuring this is the first step in a long process. And I get an email the next day saying, congratulations, you're Team USA. And so I recruited my <laughs> so reluctant great. family and we flew to Spain, totally unprepared because these are people who spend hours a day for years, just like they are the LeBron Jameses of this. And, and we were you know, amateurs. And it was hilarious and delightful. And we totally embarrassed our, our country coming in second to last. Who came in last? It was one of the hometown Spanish teams. So, uh, yeah, we, we always have that. We're never last. But it was great. How old are your kids and how did you convince them that this was worth their time? <laughs> That's a good question. They were very... Uh, they were very flexible. They had some cognitive flexibility and agree. They were, you know how flexible they were? They, when I asked them to join the team, they said, yes, but we're not going to wear it like a uniform. <laughs> and then I went and I made t-shirts for Team USA Jigsaw and I made them wear it. So they were very nice to me. I mean, it was an adventure. We knew that it was, we were going to get trounced. But to me, I just love seeing people who are so passionate about a topic, even if the topic is seemingly silly to others, and to see the level of skill, because even something like jigsaws, you think, well, you know, what's what really is the skill? There's tons of skill. They, you have to really almost have a meta strategy where you're bouncing between different strategies. So if you have something like a, an expanse of blue sky, you should switch to shapes they arrange them in shapes. So they have a line of blue pieces with one knob and three holes and then two knobs and two holes and, and so on. So it is fascinating to see whatever is the skill, you're going to find people who have sort of gamed it and found the best way to do it. 
Well, speaking of that, I want to move to our next game that you mentioned. Now, I'll introduce it by forcing you to share some insights into a pizza restaurant in Atlanta, Georgia. So on Peachtree Street in Midtown in Atlanta, Georgia, there's a pizzeria called Verrazano's. And the logo, the V in Verrazano's is a V with a long line on top over Arizano's. And there's a three in the corner. You know how I think I'm smart. I was like, why does that guy have a cubed root? The symbol for a cubed root in the V of his name. And I've never stopped in there to get his pizza. And I learned where that comes from by consuming your new book. Tell me the story. I love that you know that. You're the first reader who has said that they know Verrazano's Pizza. And this is one of the great characters. There's so many great characters in the, in the world of puzzles. He was one of the original Rubik's Cubers way back in like 1981 when it came out. He was on all the TV shows and as being one of the fastest. And back then, fast was 45 seconds, which is embarrassing now. Like now it's the record is three and a half seconds. But anyway... He is a delight. He's very, you know, outspoken. He's got a lot of opinions. But one thing I love talking to him about was that he sees the Rubik's Cube as a real metaphor for life. Like he believes that most things you can crack if you just go through the proper algorithm, if you just have the right way of doing it. And so his second career, he opened a pizza restaurant, but he did it in a very Rubik's Cube way. He experimented with 800 different recipes, you know, 50 different types of olive oil, 40 different types of tomato and, you know, leaving them out for five minutes versus seven minutes. And so he made this 40 page document on how to make the perfect recipe. And I love it. It let me grapple with this notion. And I want to hear your thoughts on this. You know, how much of life is like a Rubik's Cube? How much can you just sort of break it down into these perfect algorithms to achieve and how much of it is, is so messy and wild that you cannot. And I don't have a, a good answer because, you know, it's a complicated issue. Well, my question for that was before you went on this journey, you were not a Rubik's Cuber. You, you could get a side or two or something like that, if I recall correctly. But then after mm -hmm. you were taught by people that are experts in the field, they gave you the keys to how you solve it. They showed you the, the algorithm and then you just have to put that plan in place and then you do it more quickly every time. Is that right? Right, right. So does that decrease the joy and the pleasure of doing it just because you're running a game plan as opposed to not knowing what you're doing and trying to figure it out? Yeah. The older guys would say, yes, that this is not true Rubik's cubing. True Rubik's cubing was when you had to be the scientist and discover the algorithms yourself and not just memorize. I will say there is, however, uh, when you get to the top level, you have to figure out which algorithm to use in which situation because there are a hundred thousand different ways to do it. So that does require some creative thinking and some problem solving that could be joyful. But yeah, for me, I'd love to order out of chaos. Like you all, all of a sudden you had a bunch of patchwork and now right. you have like these beautiful sides. But yeah, it's not, I wouldn't say that memorizing algorithms is my favorite type of puzzle is life just a set of algorithms that can be applied to every situation? I mean, maybe so. I mean, assuming this is all just, you know, a video game we're stuck inside of a simulation, <laughs> right? But I mean, I, the closest I can come is golf, right? It's like, there's certain mm. things you do. That's the game I'm most obsessed with, right? And it's, it has a physical element. It brings in the elements of wind and water and mud and air density or whatever. 
there's a certain number of things you can do that are within your control and there's things you try to repeat over and over, but every circumstance is a little bit different and you have to apply what you know to those circumstances and try to get the best. In. I mean, if your ball is, is lying on a decline as opposed to an incline, you approach the shot differently. So, hmm. Well, it's interesting. I talked to this guy who calls himself, what does he call himself? Something like chief tormentor uh, because he owns <laughs> yes. this jigsaw puzzle company that creates the most infuriating jigsaw puzzles. Like they'll have pieces from other puzzles in the box that don't even fit. Uh, but he, as, as a word you use very often in the book is diabolical. And that is. Yes, he was diabolical. And I asked him about puzzles in real life and he brought up golf. And he had an interesting point because he said that he totally re-engineered his golf swing mm -hmm. because he just decided to get rid of all of his preconceived notions and try everything. And he ended up doing this swing that looks totally weird and his friends make fun of him, but he claims he kicks their ass. And it's a swing where you, you have very short backswing, like maybe you go up to your knees and then you hit it from there. But I guess the trade-off is you have more control so that I thought was, was very, it's like the, what's the name of the, the Philsbury flop, the, the uh, famous, oh, the high jumper guy. Yeah. That right. Who totally re-engineered high jumping by just, you know, doing this method that no one had ever thought of where you go on your back. You know, Bryson DeChambeau is this pro golfer who plays a game based on physics more than he does on the love of the game, or I mean, or maybe he does love the game, but, but he's very controversial because the, he's trying to break it down into, mm. you know, launch angle and club head speed and everything. And to a lot of people, he's taking a lot of the joy out of the game and it's working very well in certain circumstances and not so well in other circumstances. But it begs the question, well, what kind of game are you playing? Is he playing the same game everybody else is playing? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? You know, like, I guess it begs the question, does it matter if you're playing the same game everybody else is playing? What that reminds me of is the common theme in your show, which is that you have to think about what is the purpose of why you're making money mm. and uh, is money an intrinsically good thing? Uh, like does making money alone make you happy or is it a, a means to an end? I side more with you that it is a means to an end and that you've got to step back and think you know, about that end. And so I'm definitely, you know, I feel that money alone, I'm very lucky that I, I have enough money, but I don't think that alone is, is sufficient for my happiness. I, I am very driven by experiences uh, like, like going to Spain. That was one of the most fun and rewarding experiences of my life. It was just so weird too. I love weird, <laughs> weird experiences, I think is what gives me joy and money. You know, you do need some money for that, but it's, you don't need, uh, you know, billions of dollars, I guess, to go to space you do, but there's so much to do that you can experience that doesn't require a lot of money that, that can still give joy. What's the difference between a maze and a labyrinth? Well, I am glad you asked. I did not know, but apparently there's a big one and I got in trouble. <laughs> I didn't know either. With the labyrinth people for not knowing. Yeah. A maze is an actual puzzle. The one you're probably familiar with, you make a left or a right and you can get lost. A labyrinth is, is more like a spiral and it, it dates back to ancient times and you walk in, there's only one path and then you walk out. 
And it's interesting in the past 20 years, there's been a resurgence of labyrinth fans who see it as a way to meditate by walking. And it's very relaxing. I mean, they'll talk about it like, you know, it's like a transformative experience. It'll cure blindness. Literally, they mm. like some of them say it'll cure. Blindness. So I went to a labyrinth gathering association and and I walked labyrinths and it was it was very relaxing uh, and meditative. It didn't you know blow my mind, but it was kind of nice. But the labyrinth people, some of them just hate me. You know, one guy said. God created the labyrinth to undo the damage that mazes have done to our psyche. So, so there's some like, you know, animosity, but I also love mazes and I spent some time doing the hardest corn maze in the world in Vermont. And it was just a, you know, it's a blast. When you go to a corn maze, do you ever worry that you're going to be murdered in the middle of a corn maze? I mean, I can't, <laughs> maybe it was the fact that I saw the shining at a very young age or whatever, but I just feel like corn mazes, I know it wasn't a corn maze in the shining, but I just feel like corn mazes would be a, a delightful place to, you it know, does. To, to stage a horror movie. And I will tell you this one maze, I mean, people get very emotional, they, like, you know, people weep and there have been, uh, the guy who owns it told me that fathers will abandon their wife and kids because they're so frustrated. So yeah, I don't know if there've been murders. In fact, I'm pretty sure there haven't, but yeah, there's definitely high emotion. I want to read back something one of the people at the labyrinth said to you and uh, get your thoughts on it. The labyrinth is not the puzzle to solve. The puzzle is you and you solve it by walking the labyrinth. Well, I do love that. I love the idea of the puzzle being you, the puzzle being life, the puzzle being yourself. But I don't think that the labyrinth is the only way to solve it. I think that all kinds of puzzles do just that. They train your mind to help you think in creative ways so that you can solve the puzzle of yourself, puzzle of your life, the puzzle of money, uh, etc. Well, the title of the book is The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever from Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. So here we are, AJ. What is the meaning of life? <laughs> You know, I thought when I wrote that subtitle, I was like, huh, I guess I am going to get asked that. So, yeah, yeah, I think you're the first. But I would say, and this might sound pat, but I truly believe it, which is that to me, as I said, curiosity is my favorite thing. So the search for the truth, search for knowledge and experiences is what gives my life meaning. So in a sense, the meaning of life is the search for the meaning of life going along and trying to discover whatever you can. And that is what gives me meaning. I can't say that it's the meaning of life for everyone, but that is certainly for me what resonates. In your last book, Thanks a Thousand, you went on a quest to thank everyone involved in the creation of your morning cup of coffee. And what you mentioned at the top of this conversation that that book and this book have in common is that gratitude forces you to notice what goes into the everyday. Is that part of your mission to try to get the reader to notice what's going on around them? Oh, yeah. I love that you picked up on that. And there is a section on visual puzzles, which is the most sort of literal type where you have to note it. You know, where is Waldo? Where you have to really notice the or even optical illusions where you have to shift your perspective. But I said in the book, this idea of noticing is very important to me. And I did mention it in the previous book. And one experiment I did in my mind is like, you know, what if I imagined that when I'm walking down the street, it is like a two page Where's Waldo 
spread in a Where's Waldo book and like just notice all the little details. I'm looking now out my window at the the little fake Greek columns that they have in the building. And I never noticed that. I've actually never noticed that until now. I've been staring at it for four years. So is that, isn't that weird? By the way, last thing on Waldo, because I think this is very important. By the way, is, I just I just bought my kids a Waldo book based on because I was like, I hadn't thought about Waldo forever. And I thought, oh, you aw, know what? My kids would love that. How old are they? 11 and 12. Yeah, that's good, Waldo. Well, this didn't make it into the book because I found out afterwards. But Waldo apparently is one of the most banned books, according to the American Library Association. And I looked into it and it's a little unclear why, but it seems... That it's because in one Waldo, there was a beach scene and this woman was, she was lying face down, but she was topless and you could see her side boob. And this apparently (laughs) affected some of the uh, people on the the more conservative readers. So Where's Waldo has been banned. So you're supporting banned books. I'm that much of a rebel. Well, AJ, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining again. And thanks for all the work that went into this very enjoyable book, The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, From Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Uh, They can go to ajjacobs.com. But I do also recommend, if they like puzzles, then check out thepuzzlerbook.com. Because there is, if you click on that, you'll get to a contest. And by the way, no purchase necessary. Legally, I'm (laughs) I'm very, I want to stress that. But there is a code in the introduction. There's a secret passcode in the introduction of the book, which is available for free on the internet and on that website. But if you can find the code and put it in, you'll be allowed access to this amazing contest of like, I'm not sure how many, but dozens of astounding puzzles by these professional puzzle makers who are friends of mine and who did it for like way less than they should have. Even if you don't win the 10,000, I think it's a, it's a blast. I will put links to that in the show notes. Thanks, AJ, for joining. Thank you, Paul. I'm so happy that AJ joined us again to talk about his new work. I just love the way the guy's mind works. He's open-minded. He's super curious. He's not just unafraid to say, what if? He's like running after the opportunity to say, what if I lived in this counterintuitive way for a year? What could I learn? How could I turn those learnings into a fun and interesting book? And it's great that in 2022, that uh, approach to bookmaking is still alive and well. And AJ's still bringing out great stuff with big publishers. Let's jump to the takeaways. Number one, start with the end in mind. I love this. He broke down the secret to doing all these different kinds of puzzles in the book. And in a similar way, life presents us with myriad different puzzles and problems to which we need to find a solution. But if we don't know who we are or what kind of a person we want to be, that would be our end. We don't know the best path to take to solve those. So start with the end in mind. Who do you want to be? What values do you want to live on a daily basis? If you know that, You'll have a good place to start when you start to unravel the puzzles that life keeps throwing at you. Number two, embrace the eraser. Oh my God, so important. In this time, these contentious political times, it's really important to embrace some intellectual humility and try to understand the points of the other side or sides. And in so doing, you might actually come to the conclusion that you're even more right than you thought you were but you could have a little bit more empathy for the other people in the world. You know, I was thinking the other day, like we shouldn't all strive to be friends. We don't have to be everybody's BFFs, but we should strive to be good neighbors to each other 
because it's in our own best interest. Because at some point, you're going to need that neighbor right back. So for the love of God, embrace the eraser and understand that you might feel right. You might even be right, but it's not necessarily the most important thing. Lastly, I love the observation that AJ made that puzzles force us to notice. We must be aware. We must keep our eyes open. And that if we want to be grateful in life, we have to have our eyes open as well, that we have to notice what's going on around us. And if we can do our best to get our our noses out of our phones and laptops and look at the world around us, we'll have a better chance of noticing and being grateful. And that ties into the bonus takeaway. That's right. The bonus takeaway this week. I love what he talked about the fresh eyes, how important fresh eyes are for puzzles that when you're dealing with problems in life and you feel like you're stuck, take a break, go for a walk, take a jog or a nap. You ever notice that when you're having like a terrible, the worst kind of fights with your partner, your spouse, and you can't see your way through like to, to an agreement, but you go to sleep at night and you wake up and all the emotions have dissipated. And you know what? You're looking at each going like, wait, I can't even remember what I was so mad about. Take a break. Give yourself some fresh eyes. It helps not just with puzzles, but with life and with relationships. All right. That's it for this week. Next week, I'm thrilled that I'll have a guy on named Jay Newman. He's a former, very successful hedge fund manager who during his investment career placed massive bets buying the debt of countries who had fallen into default on their bonds. And that story enough, crazy, like decade long fight with Argentina and other developing nations. That would be interesting enough, except that Jay's also got a new novel out. It's a spy, money, espionage, kleptocracy thriller called Under Money, which I read and enjoyed. And I look forward to sharing that conversation with Jay next week. Until then, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.